It was April of 1970. Um, I was six years old. Some of you were a little older than that, and so you'll remember this event perhaps better than I will. But it was April of 1970 when uh, NASA launched uh, its third manned mission to the moon. And that mission was codenamed Apollo 13. Uh, Apollo 13 had three astronauts on board. The plan was to orbit the earth and then to uh, land on the moon's surface for the third time and then return home. Now, many of you know, maybe because you remember it from 1970 or perhaps because you saw the movie, but many of you know that uh, not too many hours into that mission, there was an onboard explosion, an oxygen tank exploded, and it crippled the spacecraft. And so the lunar landing was aborted and the crew um, headed for home. Now, what wasn't known for sure was how much damage was done to the spacecraft. And so there was great concern that when the spacecraft carrying our three astronauts was to begin its descent and to come into the Earth's atmosphere again, that it was possible that the heat shields having been damaged could fail and that the spacecraft would burn up and, of course, all three astronauts would burn up with it. It was a grave concern that that could be the case. And so as they began their descent and they, they began to enter into the atmosphere again, they went into what is known as a communications blackout. They, the, the radios didn't work during that time. And for six long minutes, no one on earth knew if they had in fact survived that reentry. For six minutes, not only mission control, but all of America, and really not even only all of America, but the entire world leaned in, waiting for the news. Did they survive? And it was only after finally radio contact was reestablished and they began to see the, the capsule descending. In fact, here's a, a picture on the screen of that capsule as it landed in the ocean. Uh, for all of you children of the 21st century, that's the way spaceships used to land back on Earth. But uh, uh, it was only then that it was discovered the good news was they, in fact, survived. Some of you remember that event very, very well. A few years later, in uh, October of 1987, in Midland, Texas, there was an 18-month-old little girl named Jessica McClure. Jessica was in the backyard of her aunt's home, and she was playing around back there. And in the, in the backyard, there was an old uh, well that was no longer in use. All of the mechanics had been removed from it. Um, the only thing that remained was the well casing, the well pipe, which still went hundreds of feet into the ground. It was an eight-inch cylinder uncovered. Jessica McClure was 18 months old, and she was playing around that pipe, and she plunged in. She fell 22 feet and lodged and was struck 
in every sense of the word, uh, stuck there, buried alive, 22 feet below ground. The only way that they knew that she had fallen was when they looked for their little girl, they heard her cries coming up, echoing out of that eight-inch pipe. Well, you can imagine, and many of you well remember, I certainly well remember the rescue efforts that began immediately. Uh, First responders were called, and then uh, drill teams were called in. 56 hours they worked to save Jessica. Ultimately, the way that they saved her was that they they drilled a, a rescue shaft parallel with the well casing. They drilled down just below the 22-foot level where she was, then drilled over beneath, cut into that well casing, and pulled her down and then up to safety through the rescue shaft. You will remember the moment when they brought her up, having bandaged her underground and, and, and immobilized her, and then brought her up and took her to the hospital, of course, where, thank the Lord, she was fine. 56 hours, though, the world, the entire world, leaned in, waiting for the news. Now, many of us are old enough. I I remember the Jessica McClure uh, event well. I I well remember watching the news endlessly. And this was before the 24-hour news cycle, but endlessly watching news breaks of how was she doing and would they, in fact, be able to rescue her in time. Many of you remember the 1970 Apollo uh, disaster as well. These were were nail-biting moments, right? These were moments filled with hope, but at the same time filled with fear. People sitting in silence, staring at a television screen, waiting to hear the news. Would it be good news? Now, that kind of intense, hopeful waiting could well describe what might have been the case throughout the world just prior to the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Prior to Christ's coming, the Old Testament had closed with the prophecy of Malachi. And when the Old Testament closed, heaven went silent for 400 years. Think about it. For 400 years, there was no prophet. There was no angel speaking from heaven. The heavens were silent. For anyone who might have been paying attention... They could have read the book of Daniel and understood that these were now the days when the Messiah would come. Because Daniel chapter 9 verse 25 had given a timeline of when to expect the Messiah to come. In fact, we know that's how the three wise men knew to travel from the east. That it was the season because the prophet Daniel had in fact foretold the season when he would come. Paul later wrote in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 that this moment when Jesus came that Daniel spoke of 400 years after the close of the Old Testament, Paul said later this was the perfect time, just the right moment for Christ to come. It could have been that all of heaven and all of earth would have been leaning in, looking for, listening for the news to come. The Messiah has arrived. And in fact, that news did come one night. 
It wasn't broadcast on national television like it was in 1970 or 1987, but it was broadcast. Let me read to you. You have your Bibles there in Luke chapter number 2. Let me read to you what the Bible says in verse number 8. Luke 2 and verse 8 says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they, those shepherds, were so afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. You remember how that all of America erupted when they saw that space capsule floating softly down into the ocean? Our heroes are safe. Do do you remember how the world erupted in celebration when the good news was broadcast? Jesse McClure has been saved alive. I want to tell you, heaven erupted with good news on the night of Jesus' birth when they said, fear not, the angel said, for we bring you, I bring you good news or good tidings of great joy. And surely it was good news. But you should know that that good news that was announced that night should not have been a surprise to those shepherds or to anyone else because it had been promised some 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. Go with me now to Isaiah chapter 61. Hey, let me give you a little bit of background. Can we take just a minute before we read this passage and let me orient you to the book of Isaiah just a little bit? Would you mind if we do that? Um, Let me begin. Hold your finger in chapter 61. Go to Isaiah chapter 1. Let's start there. We'll make our way to chapter 61. Um, In in Isaiah chapter 1, you find the author of the book. And so look at it, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us who wrote the book. This is, or these are, the visions of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Verse 2 says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. By the way, I might just stop and say right there, when the Lord has spoken, that settles it. Amen? Uh, I saw a bumper sticker once that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, that's pretty good, but you could leave out the I believe it part. If God said it, that settles it, whether I believe it or not. The Lord has spoken, hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, the Lord has spoken. So verse 1 tells us that the author of the book of Isaiah is the prophet himself. Verse 1 also gives us a timeline, a time stamp of the time of ministry of Isaiah. He says that these are uh, um, visions that he saw during the reigns of these kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now we know that Uzziah reigned in Judah from the years 770 B.C. until about 740 B.C. And in fact, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, it tells us that Isaiah received his call to become a prophet, to become the preacher, in the year that King Uzziah died. So he began preaching his message in the final days of the reign of Uzziah. 
And then it tells us in verse number one of chapter one that he prophesied or preached until the reign of King Hezekiah. And we know that King Hezekiah reigned until about 690 B.C. So somewhere around 740 B.C., Isaiah began his ministry. Somewhere approaching uh, 690 B.C., his ministry came to an end. That means that Isaiah prophesied for some 50 to 60 years, a long and fruitful ministry. I have to tell you, when I first went into the ministry years ago as a 20-year-old kid, I I would have read that and thought, man, how in the world could someone uh, involve and be involved in ministry for 50 or 60 years? I just thought that seemed like forever. Well, I'm an old preacher now, and that doesn't seem all that far out at all anymore. 50 to 60 years, Isaiah had this ministry. Now, his prophecy, the book of Isaiah, is divided. If you were outlining it, you would divide it in two major divisions, okay? So there's 66 chapters in this book. Here's how you would divide it. Uh, Division number one is chapters one through 39. Chapters one through 39. Division number two is chapters 40 through the end of the book, chapters 40 through chapter 66. Now, it's because of that that some people have called the book of Isaiah uh, a Bible in miniature, So think about it. In your Bible, there are 66 books of the Bible. In the book of Isaiah, there are 66 chapters. Your Bible is divided into two major divisions, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27 books. The division of the book of Isaiah is the 66 chapters are divided into the first 39 have been called the book of judgment and the second 27 chapters of Isaiah have been called the chapters or the book of comfort. So very much like the Bible is divided, the book of Isaiah is divided as well. The first 39 chapters deal with God's indictment of Israel for their sin and their rebellion and His warning and message of sure judgment that's coming upon them because of their rebellion. That's chapters 1 through 39. Chapters 40 through 66 deal with God's promises of mercy and redemption and salvation that he promises to the nation of Israel. So again, the divisions are the same as the Bible as a whole. Uh, And then in the book of Isaiah, the message of those two divisions mirrors, in many ways, the messages of the Old and the New Testament. That's not to say you don't find mercy in the first 39 chapters of the book. It's not to say you don't find mercy in in the Old Testament. Certainly we do. And it's not to say that there aren't warnings of judgment in the second division uh, and that there aren't warnings of judgment in in the New Testament as well. But that division is largely along the lines of the Bible itself. Go with me to chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, notice where this division occurs. And it's very, very obvious. Chapter 40, verse 1. After uh, after 39 chapters of uh, warning them of judgment to come because of their rebellion, suddenly, in chapter 40, verse 1, the message changes. Verse 40 says, Comfort ye... Comfort ye my people, saith saith your God, 
Speak ye comfortably unto Jerusalem. Cry unto her that, she, uh, that her warfare is accomplished and that her iniquity is pardoned. For he, she has received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. So suddenly, the message goes from judgment to mercy. From warning and indictment to redemption uh, that is coming. And the differences in these two divisions are so stark that many people have postulated that the book has two authors. They've said, well, surely the same author wouldn't write these two sort of contradictory or so different messages. Well, of course that doesn't need to be necessary, that there would be two authors. Surely both sides of that coin are true, are they not? That there is a judgment for sin, but there is a mercy that God offers In fact, keep reading chapter 40, verse number 3. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, saying, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This points forward to the message of of John the Baptist. These were the words ascribed to or attributed to Isaiah's pen, but applying to John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Savior. So in chapter 40, after 39 chapters of of pronouncing judgment, chapter 40 begins to bring the mercy of God. Now, how will that mercy of God come? Um, Keep turning a few more pages. Go to chapter 45, Isaiah 45. Uh, Well, actually, look at the last verse of chapter uh, 44. Chapter 44, verse 28 says this. Thus says, uh, thus does the Lord say of Cyrus, God says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all of my pleasure even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and the temple uh, and thy foundation shall be laid. Now, this is incredibly interesting because uh, this declaration of Cyrus, who, is, who will be the king of Persia, is made that Cyrus will declare to the Jews, you can go back home and rebuild your city and rebuild your temple. That's the first way God's mercy would come. Part of their judgment was they went off into Babylonian captivity. Seventy years later, Cyrus would allow them to return. But Isaiah, if y'all are listening, say amen. Don't miss this. Isaiah prophesied a hundred years before Israel went into captivity, and Cyrus didn't allow them to go home from captivity until 70 years after they went into captivity, or nearly 200 years after. After Isaiah wrote. So Isaiah prophesied to the name of the king Cyrus. How that they would be receiving God's mercy and being allowed to return back home. That's how God's mercy would come to them. They would not be in captivity forever. But the mercy of God for Israel, as we learned in the study of Revelation, is not limited only to the fact that they were taken back out of captivity 2,000, more than 2,000 years ago. No, God has a future plan for Israel, right? There's a future kingdom. There's a salvation that's coming to God's chosen people. And that promise is made in the book of Isaiah as well. Keep turning. Go to chapter number 53. Isaiah chapter 53 looks far beyond Cyrus, far beyond the, um, the grace that they would receive by their captivity ending. And it looks to the redemption that would come through Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He is despised and we esteemed him not. Who could Isaiah be talking about? Who is this, this one so despised and so unloved and so rejected? Well, you don't know until you keep reading. Verse 4 gives you a hint. Surely he, this rejected one, despised one, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Do you, do you know now who he's talking about? Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who was the one that bore the iniquities, not only of Israel, but of the whole world? It's Jesus. So 39 chapters where God warns them of rebellion's result, of sin's consequence, which is judgment, that would come to them in the short term by going into bondage. God says, I'll deliver you from that. But in the bigger picture, it would send them into eternal bondage and death in hell. And so I won't only deliver you from Babylon if you'll trust in my servant, in my Messiah, I'll deliver you from hell because he has borne your sins. Do you understand? This is the deliverance that God has promised. It's the short-term deliverance from Babylon, the long-term by faith, that deliverance from sin itself. And then ultimately that promise of mercy to Israel will still yet be fulfilled in the kingdom which is coming, which we learned about over the last few weeks. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 61 and we'll land right there. Because in Isaiah 61, you have this prophecy, this promise of this kingdom, this fulfillment of God's grace in the kingdom which is coming. And we'll read chapter 61 in a second. But here's the point. It is that for the, for the Israelites, for the Jewish people, the good news that they needed, the best news that they could hear would be the news that a God who was righteous in his judgment of their sin would at the same time be a God overflowing with mercy. A God who is slow to anger and quick to pardon. A God who is filled with patience and with goodness. That was the best news that they could hear. And so during these Christmas weeks, during this season, we're going to consider the promises of Isaiah chapter 61. We're going to camp in Isaiah 61 for the next four Sundays. And over these weeks, we're going to consider these words of comfort, these words of good news, and learn how that not only do they apply to Israel, but by the grace of God, they are words of hope and comfort from a gracious God to every single one of us. You turn to your neighbor and tell them right quick, just tell them on both campuses, I need some good news. Will you tell them? I need some good news. Today we're going to talk about good news for the brokenhearted. Don't raise your hand. Is there any brokenhearted people in the room? Any brokenhearted people in our church? We're going to talk about good news for the brokenhearted. Next week we'll talk about good news for the captives. Week three we'll talk about good news for ruined lives. And then week four, Christmas week, we'll simply talk about good news for the world. Let's read it. Isaiah chapter 61, you follow along as I read, beginning in verse number one. Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Stop right there. We'll, we'll get to this in a minute. He's not talking about himself. He's speaking third person here, okay? So let's read it. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. 
Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings or good news. The Lord hath anointed me to preach good news unto the meek. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all that mourn. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. To give unto them beauty for ashes. To give unto them the oil of joy for mourning. And to give unto them the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting or the orchard, the vineyard of the Lord, and that he might be glorified. And they, these blessed and mercy, those who have received mercy, they shall build the old waste places, and they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the waste cities and the desolations of many generations." I think you would agree with me if you are a Jewish person sitting in Babylon in bondage and captivity awaiting your redemption or if you're a Jewish person in the days just prior to going into captivity, you would see these words as good news. Let's talk about it briefly. It won't take us long. Jot this down somewhere in your notes. Let's first of all discover who this good news is for, who this good news is. Is for. Verses 1, 2, and 3 tell us, verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach good news. And who's it for? He's anointed me to preach good news to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. This good news is for the brokenhearted. Not only the brokenhearted in Israel, but the brokenhearted through the ages. It's good news for the brokenhearted. Now, the word brokenhearted means, I mean, we all know what it feels like to be brokenhearted, but the word means to be in a place where hope has drained away, where the joy that comes with hope has begun to flow out of your life. Another way to say it is to be brokenhearted is to have your hopes or your dreams or your experience shattered to have your heart ruined or your heart shattered. Now, the truth is everybody experiences setbacks in life, don't we? Everybody encounters sadness in life. We we all have disappointments in life. But sometimes disappointment is not a strong enough word. Sometimes to say I've experienced a setback doesn't describe it at all, or to say, I'm, you know, I'm just a little down today or a little sad today, that, that doesn't even come close. Sometimes our situation is such that our grief can only be described as shattering. Sometimes it can only be described to say we are broken or we're brokenhearted. What would cause it? These these are not the little things in life, right? This is not, I wanted to go play golf and it rained me out. It's disappointment. It's not to say that I I had a little disappointment come up. These These are the big things. 
What is it that brings such grief that we could only say that we are brokenhearted? Well, one of those certainly would be the grief of loss. Loss. You know, when I think about loss, I think you probably would think of the same biblical figure that I would. It would be the loss experienced by Job, right? I mean, Job becomes for us sort of this biblical picture of what's possible in terms of loss in this life. Listen to what Job says describing his condition in chapter 19 and verse 10. He says, he hath destroyed me on every side and I am gone. My hope hath he removed like a tree. Now, Job is speaking of God, not in an accusing uh, sort of way or saying that God is this mean or maniacal sort of deity. No, he's saying God is sovereign over all of life. And in this life over which God is sovereign, here's the reality. I'm destroyed. He can only describe it with the word destroyed. He says, I am gone. He wasn't physically gone. He hadn't died. He was still there. But as far as his experience was, as far as his loss was concerned, everything was gone. He said, for me, hope, expectation in life, like a tree that you would cut down and drag away and dispose of. That's me. The loss that Job experienced caused him to say, I have been brokenhearted. And Job really was. I mean, wasn't he? He was, he was stripped of so much. You think about it. Job was stripped of his prosperity his identity in so many ways, how he was known in, in his part of the world, a good man, a, a, a successful man, a, a man of wealth and prosperity. It was taken away. By the way, you know, for so many of us, our identity is wrapped up in what we do. It's wrapped up in, in our work or our profession or what we do and then what comes along with that profession. And there's danger in letting that be your identity because like Job, you can lose those things. Our identity needs to be rooted in who we are in Christ, which never changes. But, but for Job, he, he said, I, I've lost my prosperity. Not only did he lose his standing in the community, but he lost his wealth, his income, his possessions. And You could take all of those possessions probably 10 times from him and he would gladly give them if he hadn't have lost the second thing. And that was his children. You know the story. Job didn't lose one child out of many. He didn't lose a couple. Job lost all of his children. All of his sons and daughters were killed in a, in a tragic storm. He lost his children. Job lost his health. A strong and strapping man suddenly is now covered from head to toe with boils inexplicably. No good diagnosis. He simply has resorted to taking a broken piece of pottery and constantly scraping all over his body. His health is gone. He lost his wife, or at least the devoted support of his wife. She mocked him. And finally, he lost the help of his friends. The truth is, Job was shattered. And all of us can experience shattering. Maybe, maybe we would be hard-pressed to find someone who would experience such comprehensive loss as Job did. But if you've experienced loss, you know it doesn't have to be comprehensive loss. It can just be the loss of 
a loved one or the loss of an income or the loss of your health. A singular loss, but devastating, no, no less. Paul also endured a circumstance which led him to hopelessness. Sometimes we find ourselves brokenhearted, losing hope, not because people are dying necessarily, but just because, because life is hard. I don't mean a little bit hard. I mean really, really hopelessly difficult. Listen to what Acts 27 and verse 20 says. Paul wrote about his experience. And when neither sun nor stars in many days had appeared and no small tempest or storm lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. Now he's talking about a, a, a shipwreck that he's in and a storm that lay upon that ship. I have no doubt in my mind. Some of you here today are going through a, a heavy storm and it's ongoing, and you don't know, you would have thought by now it, it would have ended. You, you would have thought by now that God would have fixed it and resolved it, and things would have been cleared up. But it hasn't been. It's ongoing, and it drains the, the life and the hope out of you. So Paul understood what Isaiah meant. Job would have understood what Isaiah meant, that there are circumstances which leave us brokenhearted. And when we are brokenhearted, look at what Isaiah says. He says that when we are brokenhearted, when our hopes are shattered, here's what we do. Verse number two says we mourn. He speaks in verse number two about the mourning to comfort all of those that mourn. Verse three, to appoint unto those that mourn. The, the word mourn literally means to have your eyes cast to the ground. Someone who is mourning has their head low. And because of their loss or their circumstance or their, the storms of difficulty or whatever it is, their hearts are broken, the hope has begun to drain away, and their head bows with the hope that, that drains. And they grieve. He goes on to say, not only do we mourn, but he says we wear ashes. This is verse number three. To point unto them that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes. Now, in our culture, we may not know what that means. In the Hebrew culture, when you were grieving, when you were brokenhearted, when you were mourning, it was a common display of that mourning to sit in ashes, literally, literal ashes, an ash heap, and to, to plant yourself in a place where no happy, no reasonable person, no one going about the days of, of normal, joyful living would ever sit in ashes. But you would plant yourself, you would sit in ashes, and then they would even take those ashes and heap them upon their head. And it was a symbol of the devastation of my circumstance, the hopelessness, the brokenness of my heart. And we don't sit in ashes today. But we demonstrate our mourning in different ways. Maybe in the loss of a loved one, the death of a loved one, we, we wear black. It's a demonstration of my mourning. Sometimes our modern day sackcloth and ashes could be described as depression. Very real. Very real malady that very many people in our culture are saddled with. Very many people who know and love Jesus struggle with depression as well. Depression can be described as this consuming darkness of the soul. 
Oftentimes people in depression don't eat, don't have an appetite, they cry uncontrollably, they sleep more than normal, they live life, but they live with a sense of hopelessness and perhaps even no desire to live any longer. So there's mourning and there's the wearing of ashes. There's depression. And then he goes on to say in verse number three, there's a spirit of heaviness. Uh, He says to give them uh, for the spirit of heaviness. Uh, He promises a, a garment of praise. It's an interesting word, the spirit of heaviness. It's, it's a picturesque word, and it's most beautifully presented as a candle which has burned all the way down till all that's left is liquid wax and a little bit of wick. You know how a candle, when it gets to the very bottom of the wick, it just, it's just barely, barely flickering and smoldering, and it's about to go out. That's the, that's the picture of this word, the spirit of heaviness. It's the person who would say, I think I'm almost to the end. I I can't do this anymore. I cannot continue. My flame is about to go out. Now, here's what I know, that there are some of us here today who are experiencing to varying degrees these kinds of circumstances, a broken heart, mourning, Depression, sitting in ashes, if you will, our flame is about to go out. One thing I also know after 30 years of pastoring is that very often when we are feeling those things and and we're experiencing those broken hearts, we don't admit it. Can I get a witness in the room? We don't admit it. And the good news offered in Isaiah 61 is offered to those who admit it. Because very often what we say is, no, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm fine. Hey, are are you doing okay? I'm good. I don't talk about it. We put on a face and we buck up and and we're going to make it. Notice what verse number one says. For the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings, good news to not just the brokenhearted, but to the meek. And the word meek means the humble, those who are willing to say, I need that good news. I'm not okay on my own. I can't muscle through this. I need the grace of God to bring me this good news. So what is or who is the good news for? It's for the, it's for the brokenhearted. Second question, who this good news is from? Who offers the good news? It is, is it Isaiah? Well, I said to you earlier that he's not speaking of himself in verse 1. Look at it again. He's speaking in third person. And by the way, when we read the text, did you notice the Trinity? Did you see the Trinity in verse 1? All three of the divine Godhead are present in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. In that one statement, you have both the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, and the Father, the Lord God, the first person of the Trinity. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The me is the third person of the Trinity. The me in verse 1 is not Isaiah. The me is Jesus himself. He said, Pastor, how do you know that? Did you just make that up? I didn't make that up. I don't make stuff up when I'm in the pulpit. Otherwise, no promises. (laughs) How do we know that it's Jesus? Because Jesus himself said it was him. 
In Luke chapter number 4, Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth. He sits in the synagogue, reads Isaiah 61, and then says to them, Today, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one. That's who's mentioned. That's who's referenced. That's who's speaking in Isaiah 61 and verse number 1. Jesus is the one bringing the, the mercy. And by the way, he's saying, I didn't send mercy to you. Will you get this? If you're in church today, sitting in ashes, feeling depressed, overwhelmed by your circumstance, grieving loss, brokenhearted, hear this. Jesus didn't send good news. He brought good news. He has come to bring it. And what is it? What is the good news? You know, when we talk about what this good news is, we ought to acknowledge that when we are brokenhearted, we do not want a consolation prize. Amen? I mean, imagine when the Apollo 13 uh, spacecraft was trying to enter uh, the, uh, the Earth's atmosphere, and all of America and the world was watching, particularly the wives of those three astronauts and their children, they didn't want a consolation prize, right? I mean, they didn't want a, a recovery uh, uh, mission. They, they didn't want to get the spacecraft back. Nothing would be the great news that they would, would, would be satisfied with except my husband, my father, our heroes made it back safely. When Jessica McClure was in that pipe, her parents weren't thinking, as long as we can just get her body out and give her a burial. No, everything in them hoped, not for a consolation, but for absolute rescue. And I want you to know that this is what Jesus promises. When he promises us hope, he promises full hope to brokenhearted people. Look at verse number two. He says, this is why the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is what I have come to offer, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. The word comfort means to comfort with or to sorrow with. It's the idea of coming along beside you. It's the ministry, are you listening, of his presence. Sometimes the greatest comfort you get when you're brokenhearted is not the wise words of an articulate minister who comes to speak words to you in the midst of your grieving. Sometimes you just want to say, be quiet. I don't want to hear it right now. Sometimes in the deepest places of our grief, the greatest comfort is found not in words, but in presence. In just being with me. And when he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring you good news and I'm going to bring it by comforting you in your mourning, he meant I'm coming to you in your mourning. I will be with you. He said to comfort all of those that mourn. And then verse number one says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. I love this word, to bind up. Do you know what it means? It means exactly what, what it sounds like it means. It means to, to 
put a a splint on. It's the idea of a physician taking a, a broken bone, a broken arm or a leg and resetting it and then binding it up until it can heal. He says the promise, are you listening, of the Messiah is when you are broken, he will be with you and in his presence, he will bind up your heart and mend it so that ultimately it can heal. You are not hopeless in your brokenheartedness. I will bind it up like a physician. And then for all of your mourning and for all of your ashes and for all of your your heaviness, Verse three says, I will appoint some things to you. It means I will exchange some things for your mourning. I will give you something in exchange for your ashes. I will give you something in exchange for your heaviness. For your mourning, he says, I will give you fresh oil. Your despair will turn to joy. You will be refreshed. Your ashes will be replaced with beauty. This is the idea of darkness, the darkness of the soul, the darkness of depression being replaced with the bright countenance of hope and the heaviness of your life being replaced with a a garment of praise. I view this perhaps most helpfully in, in my own mind as that heaviness being the exhale of the sigh being replaced with the the exultation of praise. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring you good news, to be with you as I bind up your brokenness and to replace all that goes with that brokenness with these things of refreshing brightness and praise. Now this is the hope that we have in Jesus. This is what Jesus comes to offer, that even in this life, when we experience great loss, the loss of a loved one, we bury someone that we love. Like Job, some of you have buried children. I, I, can't even, I cannot even begin to imagine the grief that you must feel, even if that was decades ago. Like Job, you know what that is, to walk away from the grave of your child. Some of you have have lost the devotion of your spouse, like Job's wife. Some of you are enduring the storms of life like Paul would have described. But the hope of the gospel is that Jesus has entered into our brokenness and that he stays with us the entire length of this journey, binding us up all along the way, and that one glorious day, heaven will open before us and all of the brokenness of this life will be gone. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The Spirit of God is upon me because he sent me to bring you good news. And I want you to know the good news. I want you to experience the presence of the Savior. I want you to know him as your Lord, and I want you to find him as your friend, and I want you to let him walk with you through the pain, and I want you to let him bind up the brokenness and replace the sighing with singing and the heaviness with a lifted countenance. And the hopelessness with a hope that one day in heaven he will make all things right. This is the good news.